Often on Easter we sing the hymn that we began the liturgy with, and it always, uh, to me, and maybe to some of you, has a kind of Gilbert and Sullivan quality to it. And that's because Arthur Sullivan wrote the music to the hymn. But my favorite line in the whole hymn is, Led them with unmoistened foot through the Red Sea waters. And so the question comes to mind, didn't their feet get a little wet when they were going across it? Nope! <laughs> unmoistened foot! If you're new to St. Luke's Church, we welcome you, and at St. Luke's, you're welcome wherever you find yourself on your spiritual pilgrimage. We're very glad that you are here. This is the, the ground zero of the Christian year. Actually, ground zero was last night at the Great Vigil of Easter, but as we now continue through the Great 50 Days, these uh, constitute the themes of the great 50 days of Easter constitute the predicates for the entire liturgical year. And so the shape of the Easter liturgy is extremely important. On Easter, it's always uh, important also to remind ourselves what it is that the Episcopal Church has on offer in terms of how it understands Christianity, what is its central focus, what does it find authoritative how might we, if we seek to know God's will and purpose for us at all, uh, find the traditions that are part of uh, our faith community useful in a move towards spiritual maturity and a deeper and fuller understanding of God's purposes for us? So I'm going to say some things about that. I'm going to say some things about the fourfold shape of the Easter liturgy as I do every year at this time. And then maybe we'll have a little assignment about what it is that we might seek to cultivate that could be of some help to us in our spiritual journey. Most of us, even if we don't think of ourselves as particularly religious, uh, have some species of an internal yearning with regard to uh, a desire to uh, know God's purposes for us or at least some sense of purpose in our life and uh, how we understand ourselves cooperating with that as we live and what it might mean. In 2007, a well-known Canadian philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor wrote a book called the, A Secular Age. And he says that this about as well as anybody I've ever, ever read. We all see in our lives and or the space wherein we live our lives as having a certain moral, spiritual shape. Somewhere in some activity or condition lies a fullness, richness, that is in that place, activity or condition, life is fuller, richer, deeper, more worthwhile, more admirable, more what it should be. This is perhaps a place of power. We often experience this as deeply moving, as inspiring. Perhaps this sense of fullness is something we just catch glimpses of from afar. We have the powerful intuition of what fullness would be were we to be in that condition 
for example, of peace or wholeness or able to act on that level of integrity or generosity or abandonment or self-forgetfulness. But sometimes there will be moments of experienced fullness of joy and fulfillment where we feel ourselves there. So think back in your life. Have you ever felt like that at all? Have you ever felt like that, not in specifically religious terms, but just as a human being? You know, the Christian faith in life is about learning how to be the best human being you can be. Most of the time, people think it's the mastery of a certain religious vocabulary or certain customs or certain practices. And those are very important in terms of keeping us in some way uh, on an even keel. But the spiritual life is the whole of life. Body, soul, mind, spirit given to God in love. That's not from me. That's from Thomas Merton, who knew something about the spiritual life and wrote about it in a journal that he kept in the 1950s called Thoughts in Solitude. What is the spiritual life? Body, soul, mind, spirit given to God in love. So sometimes this fullness that you seek or this fullness that you experience has something to do with becoming what you already are. Father Thomas Keating says, we are not God, but our true self is God. And part of the spiritual journey is the recovery of the true self and understanding what our true self is. Some of you may think he's just, he just quotes Father Thomas Keating entirely too much. Well, <laughs> you'll rise above that because I do. <laughs> In his wonderful book, uh, the, the, the Liturgy of Spiritual Experience, The Mystery of Christ, Father Keating says that the liturgy of the church lays before us three great theological ideas, and they find their surest and clearest focus during the great 50 days of Easter. And they are the divine light, the divine life, and the divine love. And these three things are, uh, the, the, the Easter liturgy is shot through with all of them. The fourfold shape of the Easter liturgy has something to do, first of all, with the light of Christ that is symbolically present in the sanctuary during the great 50 days in the Paschal candle. And the light of Christ is here for two reasons, or three reasons. One is that in the great tradition with a capital T, it reminds us of the pillar of light that led the people of Israel in the wilderness, in the midst of the darkness. And remember Moses when he is challenged in his leadership, is tasked with the very difficult issue that all of us in any position of leadership are in, and that is to turn people's attention away from the place of remembered good times to a place where they receive a new definition, a new self-understanding, 
and a deeper and fuller knowledge of God's will and purposes for them and begin to see in their renewed self an empowerment and aptitude and ability to meet to a greater extent than before the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of them. So that is the light that's out in front. This light is also internal. It is the illuminative processes of God at work in all human beings, allowing us to see and understand the presence of the Holy Spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us and to see with greater clarity who we are and what we should do. And this light then also is present in the community of faith, the people of God, so that in their discernment and understanding about their vocation in the world, finding the ways and means to be God's people in the world, that they are shown the way. You and I must be concerned as Christian people with laboring to take that clarity and that enlightenment and the illuminative processes of God at work in our hearts and use that to make a difference in the world, to labor, to create a society where it is easier for people to be good. That is a top priority of the Christian faith and life. The creation of a society where it is easier for people to be good. So the light of Christ, the divine light, is present to us in this way. The divine light is also present in the second part of the fourfold shape of the Easter liturgy, which is the reading from the Bible of the history of salvation. So we learn uh, the, about that from the Bible, but we also learn about the divine life. It turns out that the divine life is some sense of cooperation between the creation that God made and called good and each one of us. You have a role to play in God's plan for the cosmos in big and small ways. And what happened to the community of faith we call the church is that we read about God's abiding faithfulness and presence through the history of the people of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness, through the great prophets of Israel always calling the people back to the special covenantal relationship that we had, telling them also that while the people of Israel may feel themselves to be vested with special privileges, they are really vested with special responsibilities. And one of them is to say that God's presence and faithfulness and saving embrace is not just for them, but for everyone. And that will be the message of Jesus Christ, who comes now to fulfill that prophecy that we read in the history of salvation. But something else will occur. And that will be that as people begin to do some reflecting about their own life and about their own personal history, they will discover that their history has something to do with God's plan. Your history is part of the history of salvation. And what you've been through is important. And what you've learned is important. Part of the divine light is the development 
of the practical wisdom that we learn as we live. Practical wisdom means the accumulated response to adversity. And what we have learned through coping with the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of us on a daily basis. And so the divine life and the divine light are in some ways bear on your life and the light that's shining in you. The third part of the great vigil of Easter and of the Easter liturgy is baptism. There's been a complete renewal of understanding of the sacrament of baptism in Western Christianity over the last 40 years. It is not a new innovation. It is the recovery of the primitive understanding of the nature of this sacrament, that it is no longer just understood to be cosmic spot remover, that it is God's welcome into the body of Christ, And the vesting you and the clothing you with the responsibilities and the privileges of the sacramental life. And empowering you to do something in the world that will make a difference. So the baptismal covenant becomes the template, or one of them, that you lay over your own spiritual life and development. So in a few minutes, Father Emerson will lead us in the renewal of our baptismal promises at this liturgy which is always a feature of Easter, that we will understand something more deeply and fully about this. I I tell you, every Ash Wednesday, I come into the church sometime during the day and I open the prayer book to the baptismal liturgy and I read the baptismal covenant to myself. And I say, well, how have I been doing over the past year on this thing? And where have I found some real help in understanding my response to the baptismal covenant. And the final part of the fourfold shape of the Easter liturgy is the receiving of the Holy Eucharist, the celebration of the Holy Eucharist, the outpouring of God's love. It wasn't until I understood the processes of receiving that spiritual food and drink and its benefits that I began to get some of those passages in John's Gospel where before when I was reading them, I thought, you know, I'm only getting 10% of this. Some of you who've listened to this over time may know what I'm, I'm in you and you and me and we and them and they and you and you're going, boy, I'm, this is getting a little deep, <laughs> right? But God dwells in you in the Blessed Sacrament. It gives you the strength and the stamina to meet the challenges and the opportunities in front of you to make a difference in the world. When I was a young priest, I thought everybody had to know every abstruse theory about the real presence at the Eucharist. So when somebody would come out the door and say, you know, Father Brewer, I don't know. I'm not sure when I hear about the bread and the wine become Jesus' body and blood. I don't know whether it becomes Jesus' body and blood. I don't know how it becomes Jesus' body and blood. I don't even know whether I believe it becomes Jesus' body and blood. All I know is that when I come to church and receive Holy Communion, I feel better. So I would pull myself up to my full height and say, well, you know, you really need to be more thoughtful about this. And you had da da da. Now I can't believe what a fool I was. <laughs> I say to you, 
If you feel better, good. I hope you feel better when you leave here. Because that means when you feel good, you will be able to win friends and influence people. <laughs> you will be able to make a difference in the world because you feel better. You know, it's sort of like when somebody said to Steve Martin 30 years ago, how can you be so funny? He said, what I do before I go out on stage, I put a piece of bologna in each shoe. And when I put my shoes on, I feel funny. <laughs> Whatever floats your boat, right? So when we think about the Holy Eucharist, it's important and it's deep stuff. And Christians through the generations have uh, felt better. And that's what we want. Now our species of Christianity uh, has about six things that we find very, very important in our understanding of the great Catholic tradition. Remember, Episcopalians believe that the three locations for what we find authoritative are the Bible, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. And we also believe, because of the tradition out of which we come, that the church is prior to the scriptures. The church is prior to the scriptures. My Old Testament professor, Joseph Hunt, used to come into class and he'd toss the Bible up into the air and catch it to demonstrate the, the opposite theory. What is this? It's the Bible. All right. Now you know what that's given rise to. We open the Bible and say, should I move to Des Moines? <laughs> That's not how the Bible is to be used. And the church wrote the Bible. So we always need to remember that. So we understand these three things to be interpreted and understood in light of openness, and the, and the questions that all of that raises, both to us personally and as a community of faith, we wish to labor to create in each of us some species of generosity. Some of you may have seen four or five years ago the Bill Moyers special with Houston Smith on the great faith traditions of the world. And in one of the uh, episodes, he said to Dr. Smith, uh, how would you know if you're making any spiritual progress of any kind. And he said, the invariable test in all of the great faith traditions is that as you mature in them, you notice in yourself an increase of generosity, an increase of openness. No amount of personal insight, navel-gazing, serenity counts 
unless you understand the importance of generosity and its increase. That's part of the fullness that Charles Taylor speaks about. We need to be concerned also in our tradition with intellectual and emotional integrity. Some of the most recent research on the brain tells us that we have almost what you might describe as a liquid nervous system. Feeling and thinking are simultaneous. We don't sort of have thinking here and feeling here. And we felt often, you know, they were at war with one another. A lot of people end up saying, I feel this when they really think this. I hear that all the time. And so it's happening all at once. So isn't it important for us to think clearly about what we're feeling and vice versa? And to bring some integrity to that process? Certainly about the deep things of Christian faith and belief. We need to appreciate the beauty of God's creation and the necessity uh, of our stewardship over this creation. And finally, you and I need to be people who labor for justice in the world. That's clear from the biblical witness. It's clear from the teaching of the Savior. It's clear from the prophets of Israel that that is absolutely at the heart of our self-understanding. So how might you do it in your own response? What I'm going to read here is from a new book about how how you could be an Episcopalian. Be attentive. Be intelligent. Be reasonable. Be responsible. Be in love. Be intentional about your journey of discovery and transformation. Amen.